This podcast is sponsored by Rask Invest, Owen's complete guide to money and investing. Visit the Rask Finance website to learn more and join today. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of the Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors Podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the RAS Group's Financial Services Guide on the RAS Finance website. This Australian Investors Podcast episode features Gabe Bernard of Viceroy Research. For years, Viceroy Research remained anonymous despite scores of financial journalists, hedge fund managers, analysts and company executives trying to discover their true identity. Gabe is one of the group's formerly anonymous investment analysts working alongside Aidan and Fraser to uncover shares of companies which are suitable for short selling. In this enlightening discussion, Gabe describes how Viceroy's investment and research processes work in great detail, how Viceroy was unmasked, and the accounting tricks and traps that make for some of the best short selling targets. I trust you'll enjoy this conversation with Gabe Bernard of Viceroy Research. Gabe, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. For those who don't know, Gabe is part of a short-selling, I suppose you could call it outfit? Yeah, outfit. Outfit works. Yeah, it's, um, it's you've, I suppose, shot to fame in the last few years. Uh, your research has gone across international lines and um, caught wind over in different parts of the world. We'll get to later on the show. Definitely. But uh, I think this is your first show, uh, first podcast recording, right? Interview? Yeah, this is my first podcast. So going to get Viceroy on the map and uh, hope there's <laughs> a few more to come. Yeah, cool. I've been eagerly awaiting this because one, this is the first show you've done, mm-hmm. but two, to those in the investing community and those who have seen or, or followed along with your work from a distance, um, have always been eager to find out more about who's responsible, who's behind this, who's producing this research. Mm-hmm. So I'm really excited to bring this to the market, if you like, yep, and um, to learn more about everything that's gone on in the past, say, five years, because it's a hell of a story we've met before, yep. and uh, you shared some great stories with me, so I'm just hoping we can flesh some of those out today. Yeah. Um, what we normally do is we start with you and just go back to where it all started for you, your, yeah, your, your journey towards finance. Yes, exactly. So okay. why don't you just tell us about that, your family life, and how you got started in finance? Sure. So I didn't really have any idea what I wanted to do after high school. And I think my mom pointed out to me, is like, oh, there's these professional services firms, uh, big four, mm-hmm. and a couple of, you know, boutique ones that take in cadets, which is also more like a secondment, I guess. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that you study uh, part-time, work full-time in professional services for the first two years, and then you study full-time and work if you want, I guess, for the... The remainder of your course mm-hmm. and it was, I was kind of weighing up between like commerce and engineering uh and i didn't have a preference but i applied for these jobs and thought like okay if i get this job like i'll do business that's fine mm-hmm. I'll, I'll do commerce um and i got a cadetship with ferry hodgson so i started there 18 fresh out of high school and yeah it just kind of went from there and working in insolvency i guess is sort of 
So it's like the end goal is to be like a, an, an auditor or like that's the yeah, title no, you come it, out with? It was mostly just, I, I mean, I had to study accounting. Okay. Um, and there are, there are CA, well, they were a CA firm that just got bought out by KPMG. Okay. Um, but the, the idea was not auditing or tax. It was more, um, you know, corporate recoveries, like liquidations, mm. administrations, and also just like general debt advisory, um, turnover advisory, anyone that's sort of struggling, trying to get them back on track. Mm-hmm. So it broadened up this spectrum of all these different types of businesses. And I think like on my first day, um, you know, there was a potential that I would have had to go out and like give redundancies letter, letters out to like truck drivers or something. Wow. So I was terrified. You're like 18, 19. I was 18, yeah. Oh, and I thought, well, this is like a little bit potentially, you know, I don't actually know how I could do this respectfully. I had no idea what I was doing at inception. I hadn't even done accounting in high school. Um, but fortunately I got pulled off that, I did the training, so like how to talk with creditors and stuff, because it's, it's kind of soul crushing working in a solvency because most of the time, especially for the first few years, all you do is like tell people that they've lost their money. Mm-hmm. You're on the phones all the time. Um, you're handling claims uh, and a lot of them were like mom and dads. And there's even businesses that kind of went through that just had like a bad run of luck. You know, it wasn't really, they went fraudulent. Mm. It was just bureaucracy even. Mm. So I worked in insolvency for a few years and it's kind of ironic that mm, I went from, you know, sort of the back end of looking at how like some companies were definitely fraudulent. I mean, that's with all insolvency and how that plays out, you know, looking back uh, to now trying to find out, like picking these companies before this event happens is it's is really challenging, especially when you don't have all that information. You know, I had management accounts, for example, for sure. and I could review them all going back, whatever. But when you're limited to just public accounts, you actually have to do a lot of the digging yourself in terms of actually getting like primary empirical data to mm. substantiate any claim you're making. Presumably, though, like that's if you are going to move into what you ultimately did, that's great exposure right it was yeah it was yeah it was because i I think it brings some perspective to what we do as well Mm -hmm. because there's this huge sort of backlash against short sellers it's like oh you're you know you're putting people out of business you're ruining their lives um people obviously lose their jobs um but I guess at least in my experience, it was sort of better to rip off the band-aid earlier rather than sort of become this massive infectious wound, right? It, yeah, I, I don't think people sort of get that. We, we kind of know that this will happen mm-hmm. eventually, um, but it doesn't really phase us anymore. Okay. So before we get to more of the nitty-gritty stuff, mm-hmm. why don't you take us through the period of you've just left high school, Yep. Uh, this, this, the further study that you did and, and what you were working on on the side and how that came to be. Sure. So the first two years I was basically just working at Farius. Um, and it was everything from like bookshops to cafes to bars. Um, I think there was even a strip club thrown in there somewhere. <laughs> uh, and then I sort of wound up those two years working full-time, studying part-time. I, I took an internship. Uh, at a fund 
only because they were sort of mildly interested that I worked in insolvency and they had a, a bit of a short book. Mm -hmm. um, so I helped them out with some stuff, just, you know, digging on certain companies. Uh, I pitched them a couple of short reports. These were international, so had no sort of conflict with what I was doing at Farriers. It was just sort of the idea generation on sort of what we can expect, mm -hmm. uh, you know, six months prior to a collapse. So when I came back and I, and I knew how difficult it was for these funds to get data in Australia, I started when I was in uh, uni just, you know, reaching out to funds and saying, look, you might have a good thesis in Australia. Um, our market's really different. Everyone thought it was very archaic. Hmm. I mean, we still had like JB Hi-Fi and Harvey Normans where in the US Best Buy was collapsing. Hmm. Um, this is back in like 2014, 15. Yeah. And I essentially just pitched that I would do the due diligence support for an hourly rate. So then we started just like someone would send us a thesis and I would just do, you know, even if it was sitting outside shops. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, talking to customers, setting up like survey monkeys, whatever it may be, mm -hmm. um, and got them like an underground perspective of what was happening in these businesses so that they could better, you know, validate. Or it was essentially thesis validation. Yes. Um, they wanted to know that they were right. And that's where I started working with Aiden because he was studying at uh, RMIT with me at the time. And he was in engineering hmm. and there were a couple of like mining companies that came away and I had no idea what I was doing. I was so far over my head with, in terms of like uh, geographical reports and, yeah. you know, mining feasibility. Mm -hmm. And so I, I asked him, I was like, Hey, do you want to help out with some of this more like mathy engineering related stuff? I'm sure you might have fun with it. And we'd known each other since primary school. So we went to, we were friends since we were eight, I think. Okay. So, uh, yeah, it, it kind of took off from there. And then we started doing some of this work collaboratively. And I think once we started to see that some of our work had, had played out and that we were like very correct in our thesis, it was that time that we figured it actually might be better off that we do the work ourselves and develop our own thesis. Um, even as a proof of concept so that we can sort of move into this industry. Cause that was the end goal mm -hmm. that right. When we started doing this, it was like, I want to work in funds management mm -hmm. and it, it kind of didn't play out that way, obviously, <laughs> because once Viceroy kicked off and once we met Fraser and it was during that time where we were doing some, some work for people and they asked us to look into, um, I think it was TFS. Quintus. Quintus. Yeah. Um, I was speaking to someone and like going through a thesis with them that we sort of semi come up with. And they said, oh, I know another guy that's looking into the same company as you. Hmm. And they patched in Fraser on that call. And I think me and Fraser spoke for five hours. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, this guy just doesn't stop talking but you know he's pretty interesting so i'll give him the time of the day and then he accidentally sent me an email from his anonymous outfit at the time zatara 
and kind of said, oh, shit, wasn't meant to tell you, <laughs> tell you what it was. And I think after Zatara kind of, kind of backfired, we just kind of, we just started working together as Viceroy. And he just, he, we, we sort of just started talking. He's like, hey, look, we have some great ideas. Um, why don't we just start Viceroy? Mm. And he said, cool. And then that's how we started. So it was really strange because we're very like non-traditional backgrounds. We phrase backgrounds in social services. Yeah. Um, Items engineering. I'm sort of financy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, no, none of us have had any funds experience before. It was just like we were willing to do. We're willing to spend one month on an idea, whereas most funds have are rolling between like you know at least 10, 15 ideas per person. Yeah. So the depth that we can cover uh, was much greater. And I think that's, that was our, always our value add. Yeah. So just circling back to when you started things and you started approaching these funds, mm-hmm. were they pretty receptive to have, were they entertaining the idea that they might have someone like you go out and validate their thesis? Uh, it happens a lot, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, in the US, it was really easy because uh, there's a lot of PI work yeah. that is purely like, I think the hedge fund industry, like, definitely you know keeps up the standard with the cost of pis over there but um yeah in australia it was i don't think that there's many people that actually do that still i i don't think there's anyone that does sort of this due diligence support Hmm. and we're not pis obviously but you know it's easy enough to sit outside a shop and count people going in and out Hmm. on a weekday and like if it was retail like find out half when they're having sales and all that kind of thing yeah yeah Okay, we'll get to that in a, a moment. I'm, I think, I'm sure you'll have some stories for us there. Yeah. Uh, so you met Fraser, uh-huh. and he's not based in Australia, right? No, he's in London. Yeah, right. So you, you're kind of all over well, the world. But he's, he's 50% London, 50% New York. Right. Yeah. Okay. I think for context and for some listeners who may not have a full appreciation for what you do, maybe you can just give us this, this short selling 101, what it is and how mm-hmm. it differs from traditional investing so short selling is very similar to long investing um but instead of betting on the stock price appreciating you're basing you're you're betting on the stock price depreciating and it's like borrowing money from a bank so if i borrow a share from you Mm -hmm. uh I would sell that share immediately and let's say it was worth $100 and I'm betting on that share value decreasing. Mm-hmm. So if it decreases to $50, I'd buy it back on the market and return you your share. So I'm not actually borrowing like a nominal amount of money. I'm borrowing nominal amount of shares. Yep. And then I pay interest on those shares while, to you while you loan them to me, mm-hmm. similar to the bank. So from my perspective, lending you the share... Makes sense because I've got, I was going to hold it anyway. Sure. But I might get some sort of interest. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, one other little question. Why is it called Viceroy? Uh, okay, so we were looking... This is really difficult to come up with a name, actually. But we were looking at, um, you know, instances of big bubbles. Mm-hmm. And I think the most prominent example, or one of the earliest documented examples, um, was the tulip bubble in the Netherlands. And it, it was essentially the Ottomans bought tulips to the Netherlands and they started trading the bulbs as 
like a commodity almost. So the stock, the price of a of a bulb would be somewhere in the region of the price of a house <laughs> or someone's annual income. And I think once they figured out that you can just grow these things in mass, um, the prices of tulip bulbs collapsed. And the most expensive type of tulip, or amongst the most expensive, was the viceroy. And it had a disease that made the um, petals stripy. So if you actually see our logo, the, yeah. the, the petals have a stripe on it. So they don't exist anymore. Huh. So that was the name. Okay, that's the genesis of the name. Although actually, I spoke to um, I spoke to uh, Joe at Jolly Swagman podcast, and he told me that like my facts on the Dutch tulip bubble were totally wrong. So <laughs> I might actually have uh, to take a lesson from him on that one. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's, it's a good story anyway, right? That's what, yeah. that's what this is all about. Exactly. <laughs> so um, I suppose one of the the reports that really put you guys on the map was the report about Steinhoff International, which is a South African company, mm-hmm. uh, furniture retailer, as far as I know, sold all around the world, one of the biggest companies in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Can you take us through your process, starting from due diligence right through to, I suppose, today, what happened? Sure. Yeah, I think it would just be a fascinating story. Um, so from due diligence, I think it came up on the map when uh, Steinhoff had proposed to buy a mattress firm in the US. And that stuck out to Fraser because I hadn't been to the US that much at the time. Um, it stuck out to Fraser because he's like, I've never seen anyone in those stores. How much money do they make and why are they paying so much for it? Hmm. And it was just like this huge valuation. Um, I don't know exactly what it is off the top of my head, but it seemed like it was inflated like two or three times. Right. And it was a related party transaction with... Uh, if I recall, Christoph Weiser, who was the chairman and majority holder of Steinhoff at the time. Um, and I think once we sort of started looking into that, we got into this web of really, really intricate undisclosed-related parties that we would just find everywhere. And just weird sort of transactions that didn't really amount to like huge sums of money uh, on their financials, but once you aggregated all of these, it was quite substantial in terms of their earnings. Mm-hmm. So when, so sort of months and months into like pulling out financials from all of these really, really difficult jurisdictions, Europe, I think Bahamas, <laughs> um, the, the US, uh, some in Germany, um, and even like a lot of these companies in South Africa, uh, we found that, you know, a big driver of sign-off sales, especially in South Africa, was this sort of consumer financing for furniture. And it looked like all of the debt from the consumer financing in South Africa was just sort of being offloaded for cash. But when we got the filings to see where it was going, it actually looked like Steinhoff was giving a loan to someone to buy the bad debt. Hmm. And I don't think that there was any intention to ever repay that loan. Right. And that in itself amounted to like a huge portion of earnings, even though like it wasn't really substantial in the grand scheme of like revenue. Yep. Uh, so how did you, so you went, 
into each of these jurisdictions, you were just finding this complex web of companies, effectively shell companies? Or? Yeah, and there, there were a few. Um, and there were a few that sort of, you know, I mean, once we started kind of poking this idea, uh, we get these anonymous emails that will come and be like, oh, um, I heard you guys were talking to someone about this. Here's what hmm. I found. And, you know, we had found one related party and there was another one that was sent to us on email. And collectively, I don't think that that was potentially all of them because we didn't anticipate publishing our report when we did. It was just like, it, it was as it was on the date that PwC quit and Marcus Braun quit that the stock collapsed and we figured, well, shit, may as well publish now mm. because, I mean, I'm not going to keep working on this. The, the thesis has played out. So I, I think from, from our end, it was still incomplete um, and there still potentially could be more digging done. Uh, but the state of affairs now is that you know, they're sort of dragging them through this regulatory process in a bunch of offices in South Africa. But I haven't been following it, you know, super closely. Mm. And so uh, I, I, I think I, I looked this up before I came in and I think it's the share price is down something like 90% or more. Yeah, I think it was a bit more. Yeah, right. So how big was this company? Like, What would it be akin to here in Australia? Um, I think it was like 16 billion euros, wasn't it? Right. So massive. Mm. Yeah, I think I checked it. It was about 350 million euros, I think, now. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. Don't quote me on the 16 billion. I think it was very, very big. Um, I, I, it would be like putting JB Hi-Fi, Harvey Norman, and like all of our furniture retailers into like a cluster and listing it. Yeah, right. So pretty big. Yeah, right. And naturally, the fallout from this has been huge it's especially in south africa obviously because mm -hmm. this is a, a massive company that's right and it, there's a lot of like pension cash invested in it as well mm. and banks international banks that were invested banks um and it wasn't th there was one sell side analyst only that was putting out i think negative notes on this company okay from memory and they were so poorly received even though they were factually right. And it wasn't like super difficult to do the proper due diligence on this. It was time consuming, but uh, even like inspecting the quality of earnings is like an easy thing to do. So the quality of like the cash that's coming in um, and the quality of you know, your customers, especially when you're giving out like unsecured debt for people to buy your stuff. Uh, that's like a really easy, you know, risk adjustment. Was that disclosed in the statements? I mean, yeah, they they had a they had a breakdown of you know how much of their loan book went out as unsecured debt. Right. Um, but this guy turned out to be right, and I don't, and all of these buy side analysts who had been you know continuously like, yeah, this is a great company, blah blah. blah. Um, that's fine. It, it's, they, they did, they did their research. It wasn't, you know, factually right, but they, the regulatory process that we sort of endured in South Africa on our, our piece, um, was 
pretty crazy considering that you know everyone kind of dislikes short sellers or people that write negative reports when in reality if we treated um buy reports with the same scrutiny uh i think that'd be a very very different outcome in terms of like how people perceive investment research for sure i mean everyone's happy to keep the the wagon rolling until right right like, they're employed they're making money and exactly no one likes to lose money right no and that's yeah i think you have to kind of get the emotion out of that and just mm. actually look at this thing fundamentally like what does this business do it seems like talking to you now it's it, it seems like you you remember it it was a big event obviously mm-hmm. but there, it sounds like there have been quite a few since then yep yeah um and that's one thing i wanted to touch on with you is you've you, having a look having a look at the the viceroy website and then all of the reports that have been issued, you seem to go across geographies, industries, thematics. It's just pretty much everything you seem to cover. You mentioned mining before. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Quintus, which was that sandalwood producer. How do these ideas come to you? Um, I, it sounds really dumb, but I think when we start looking at ideas, it's mostly it's too good to be true. Okay. But we don't actively go out looking for short investments we don't actively go out looking for crappy companies um i think when you like our process is the same whether we go long or short and we have long positions we just don't think it's worth publishing you know Mm. um but the the process is really really exactly the same um and when we start looking at things like i don't know if it was quintus or steinhoff um, it was more like, okay, this business seems that they're promising so much. Um, but I don't see it. Like this is not reflected in cash. And once you look at, okay, we're going to, we're promising. I mean, it, this was managed investment schemes generally, right? Like mm-hmm. I don't think there's any managed investment schemes that are still running, especially forestry ones. Uh, so when someone says, okay, you know, you can buy a plot of land. Um, and we're going to put trees on it. And in 15 years, these trees are going to be worth a lot of money. And then you're going to get a commission from the sale mm. as an alternative of raising capital from shareholders. Uh, you really want to be sure that this is like a commodity that you can price like very accurately in 15 years. Because if it's worth garbage, mm. you're not going to get paid. Right? You're paying these guys to put trees there but like things like sandalwood it's not really there's no sort of you can't go on cap iq and type in price of sandalwood (laughs) and expect you know this very very detailed graph of like massive volumes of of sandalwood being sold and being very very documented um so that was you know that's one of the really really hard parts of doing that kind of work is you actually have to go find someone that's willing to buy sandalwood which is not that many people um and someone that's and and putting it up against someone that's you know multiple multiple times supplying the global Mm. volume of sandalwood Mm. and expecting the price to be the same that seems like such a simple thing to do right to find the disconnect between yeah expectations in hindsight yeah right in hindsight right but that's that's always been the issue right like in hindsight this is very obvious it's always that right 
and, in and, hindsight, Enron was very obviously a fraud. Yeah. Right. But I suppose th- the challenge for you is not finding the worst companies and, and shorting them because they're all, everyone already knows that they're the worst companies. It's finding that change, right? The right. change from that expectation to the reality. Right. Do you, can you draw on any other examples, even recent ones, with companies that you've researched or come across that might fit that bill? I think we did a report on a company called Prosebensat, which is a German free-to-air um, sort of TV network. Hmm. And they did this thing where they would they essentially started building a portfolio of e-commerce businesses because of this widely publicized uh, case that, you know, free-to-air TV is dead mm-hmm. within, you know, a period of time because yeah. no one watches it like I watch Netflix. Yeah, me too. Exactly. Um, and in sort of an attempt to branch out from their pure play free-to-air business, they built this e-commerce and startup sort of venture on the site, which actually grew substantially on its books. And the way they did that was offering uh, advertisements on their network for equity and as opposed to cash, because a lot right. of these startups like don't really have the money to... Totally. It, was, it was a pretty smart idea, right? Like a lot of these businesses don't have cash to do the advertising themselves. So we'll give you equity, but we want airtime yep um and it created an issue where it was i think from our understanding it was very difficult to price this because the price was wasn't really based on you know um how much this business was was actually worth in our opinion i think what we found was that you know if you put them in a really expensive time slot and you get 10 percent of the equity and let's say that time slot is worth $10 million, you've got a $100 million business. Mm. Whereas realistically, that's totally subjective which time slot you give them. For sure. And if you control it. Right. And then once you start, and there were hundreds of these. So when we started going through like all these little businesses in that portfolio, and we found heaps that were in liquidation, like that were bankrupt, um, some of them that like didn't really exist in substance, among some other ones, which actually were fine. You know, like I think they own eHarmony. Or a bit of eHarmony or something like that. Right. Um, I mean, once you start going through those, you can see like the value is not really there for a lot of these like small time businesses. And while this was happening, the TV business was still deteriorating. So we put out a report and said, you can't pin the hopes of this business on this sort of venture capital mm. portfolio that they're starting because the quality of the business that are coming through here don't seem that great and it seems to be like a very subjective valuation where they're just put giving them time slots to like create this arbitrary book value and then if your time slots increase the next year or the next time you get more equity from them you earn a profit like on on the books it's not cash because it's never going to come through as cash Mm. Um, unless you sell the business because they don't generate cash generally it's it seems like with this business and you've already brought Steinhoff and Quintus with the sandalwood. It sounds like these businesses, if you were to use a finance jargon, you've got some off-balance sheet risk or there's asset risk there. There's, you know, right. there's hidden liabilities yeah. matched with expectations. So I wonder if you could look at this qu- quantitatively 
and over your time doing this mm-hmm. since the early days of Ferry Hogson, are there some, I don't know, some commonalities or some heuristics that you use now to, to speed up the process and understand the businesses? Yeah. Because I'm thinking like um, inflated asset values, mm-hmm. low cash conversion, yeah. et cetera. Um, okay, so like the biggest thing I think for us is if you have good earnings and they don't translate to cash, then there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, if your dividends are supported by debt or equity raises, it's probably a big problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what we kind of go through when we look at quality of earnings. So, I mean, from our, for our perspective, if we want to go for a long, we don't look for businesses that are, I mean, especially if you want to look for like a very, very stable long, like a company that's growing well. It's making good earnings on the product that's already selling. Um, you can see the cash actually coming through and they're raising debt to fund expansion. And the expansion is sort of, there's, there's a tangible value that's being created, you know, on earnings year on year. Mm-hmm. But when it starts getting to things like, and this is like why I think REITs are really difficult to price mm-hmm. uh, is because you, they're raising a lot of debt um, they're raising a lot of or equity and a lot of the profits come from upwards revaluation of property. So there's not really any cash coming in besides maybe like rent, mm. but it's so minimal on your bottom line compared to the value of the properties that once you kind of start steam, like snowballing debt and backing it against these values, it's just very, very difficult to mm. realistically say like, oh yeah, like every single REIT in Australia can sell their properties for this much if they needed to. Mm. Um, yeah. But I'll leave that for someone that's better at adding property than me. <laughs> so I'm not that good. If uh, if you were to think about it today, mm-hmm. how much would, would you be net short? Like would you have more of your exposure short than long? Um, I don't know. I think for us is like we, we just... We like to be short for events. Okay. Um, so, and this is like, this is that big Tesla question. And you, uh, do you know Mark Cahodes or do you know of Mark Cahodes? No, of, yeah. Yeah. So he's always saying like, you know, this Jaguar on the tree thing. It's like, you don't want to go in for the fight. You just want to wait until this Jaguar has fallen off the tree so you can go in for the kill kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's always been the case. And he's attributed this to like Tesla, right? And Tesla is super controversial. Yeah. Um, on one side, you have these guys on Twitter relentlessly going after this company with really, really good data to support them. And, you know, that you have a CEO that's, he's eccentric to say the least. Um, and, you know, over promises, gets in trouble with the SEC all the time, calls guys pedos and all this other crap. And, the the always is promoting something new with tesla and there's this sort of entrepreneurial like mindset where like i'm going to start a new project before i finish my first one kind of thing Mm -hmm. and it keeps going and and it creates it created this cult really Mm. where there's so many people that love elon musk and love tesla and they own a car and even when the car is like garbage they will still, you know, complain. Like the, if you look at complaints on Tesla, it's great because it's like, it always starts like, 
hi, Elon, love Tesla and love your work, but uh, my car won't start, uh, the boot's leaking water, um, you know, I get a flat tire every three months, whatever, and the service center hasn't responded to any of my queries for two months. Can you please help? And it's so obscure. Like if I bought a $35,000 car, like US dollar car, I'd be pissed off if my trunk was leaking and like no one responded to my service requests. And it's not like you can take it to any shop, right? Like, mm-hmm. you, you can't. It's a Tesla. It's their own thing. They have to do it themselves, kind of. So it's like owning a Mac. You just have to take it to a genius. But the geniuses are there. Whereas Tesla, they don't really have... I'm sure there's some geniuses, but they're not, they're not going to fix a car really quick. <laughs> okay. And so... And, and that's... The, yeah, so that's really... That's like what's really hard because you have such like a huge cultist community that love this guy. So why would you want to like, go short right now? Mm. And, and it's, it's working for them. Like the short's been pretty good over the last year, I think. It's down from more like 300 and something to 230 now. Or something mm. like that. Yeah, I mean, the short's great. And the, the short argument, in my opinion, is flawless. But you, you fighting, have... the, the fight is not really worth it for us. For the, yeah, the way, I've looked, yeah. the way I look at short selling is you have to have your thesis. Mm-hmm. So you have to be right about the company, but you also have to be right about the timing. So there has to be a catalyst, like you said. Right. And you have to be aware that who's on that Mm -hmm. shareholder registry or, you know, the liquidity in the market, it might not be as straightforward as this is a dodgy company. I've exposed it, now fall. Yeah. It might actually stay there for a long time. And in that time, it's not working out for you as a short seller. And there's also times like, I was listening to uh, the Jolly Swagman podcast with uh, John Hampton. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, the other day and John was like do you know the you know Briex no this is mine in I don't know Southeast Asia somewhere yeah right um and it was a huge gold mine it, had to, it was going to be the biggest gold mine in the world and we based a lot of our one of our thesis on one of our mines on this company and the geological sampling was done because like one of the executives went out bought like gold from like these guys panning for Golden River and literally sprinkled it <laughs> over their sample size. And once that was sort of blown apart, right? Because actually, like one of their geographical, um, the feasibility guys came in, it was Strathcona. And they did the same thing in this other company in Canada. They came in and said, the gold doesn't exist. And the stock dropped 90% of the day. And you know, John was saying, yeah, the easiest money you could have made on that stock wasn't like writing this thing up until Strathcona told everyone that, you know, Briex doesn't have any gold. It was probably right after the 90% drop because there's still no gold and it's still worth like three point something billion dollars. Hmm. So I don't know. I don't think, you know, it's not a lost, missed opportunity after it's already fallen 90%. Because he's still, still going to go another 100. Right? Mm. Yeah, of course it can, right? That's interesting. So, I could, because I've heard of some really good short sellers, obviously it's a pretty tight community. Uh, there's not too many high-profile short sellers in the country, and I've heard of other short sellers not jumping on the bandwagon. But you get the idea that they know that someone else has taken this position, mm-hmm. read the report, and they've gone, "Oh, okay," yeah. effectively. Almost like um, that's the part of the, that's a big part of the due, due diligence, if you like. Mm-hmm. Let's just take a small position. Is that something like? Do you guys have you have like a community that you talk to or? Not really, sellers. it's actually like of no benefit to short sellers to share any of their ideas, mm. despite the fact that like everyone thinks we're in some sort of cabal <laughs> um, or, or a wolf pack that gets yep. thrown around a lot. And I think I had Hit Squad 
Hit Squad. Uh, yeah, yeah, I got Hit Squad. Um, the and the reason is like if we go around and tell all of our buddies that we're going to go short a company, every single person is going to put in a short position. Mm. Uh, and the borrow will get extremely expensive before we're in position. And it essentially, like financially for us, it makes no sense. It's not in anyone's interest, actually. Like it's not, in, I mean, if, if, if the borrow is like at 50% and the stock tanks before we even published our report, it's more likely than not that there'll be like a, some sort of short squeeze, mm. right? Because everyone's going to try exit the position. So no, like no, we don't, we talk about our ideas after the fact, sure. Um, but we do that with a lot of people, not just the other mm. active shorts. But yeah, it's sort of, it's a weird environment. Like we, I went to like a dinner with a bunch of other like activist shorts and like everyone's sort of really quiet <laughs> and just look at each other and everyone's like, oh, what are you working on? I was like, oh, you know, just this weird company. Stocks. Stocks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you, do you think, uh, you just mentioned like the, the perception from the outside is probably that, you know, the, the short selling side of investing is the wild west. Mm-hmm. I mean, I imagine you'd have some sort of rebuttal for that in terms of being improving efficiency in the market or something like that. I think so. I mean, it's not like some holy the now kind of you know quest, but I think it's just more that it's the adrenaline you get from figuring out something that no one else has figured out is great. Um, and when there's like you know, bad people doing bad things, as corny as it may sound, it's good to sort of create. I mean, you're not really creating a narrative. You're just explaining to people that this is happening so that, you know, hopefully the market can correct itself. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we've done that with my medics, right? I mean, it was, it was a bit of a strange company, but the amount of crazy things that these guys were we're doing that we think was totally like below the belt. Can you explain the business and the thesis? Um, I think at its core, uh, the thesis was, I mean, really, we really picked up on it because they started going after a bunch of whistleblowers. As in former employees. Former employees. Yeah. Um, and we don't think that's right because if they're whistleblowers and they're trying to, even if there's, they have a perception of wrongdoing, uh, it should still be addressed and you shouldn't really go out and sue them for defamation on libel. Mm. Um, the main crux of the thesis is that there is this product for diabetic uh, leg wounds and another sort of amnio, amniotic fluid injection you can get for pretty much ac- apparently anything, right. um, including hair loss and like, I don't know. They, they literally inject it anywhere by the sounds of it. Um, and they, there's very tenuous, you know, in our opinion, tenuous um, clinical trials that have been conducted on this. And we found instances where there were employee-owned distributorships and physician-owned distributorships, which creates an environment that's hefty with kickbacks. And... I think it's unfair to say that my medics is the only person, you know, that only company that's doing kickbacks in the U S I think that the U S healthcare system is like 
insane. Because if you hire salespeople to sell crap to doctors, you're never going to like get into this environment of self-interest where people would like, I'll sell your product, but I won't. Mm. What's in it for me kind of thing. And then you get like those crazy dinners when like, I think stuff happens in movies, like they take you to a strip club or something. I'm not sure how it works, but it, the the whole idea of it is backwards. I should just mm-hmm. use the product that works, right? Yeah. Um, and we got a lot of backlash uh, from the company. It was just, I mean, we put out 20 something reports. I think if I was to explain a thesis, we'd be here for hours. Okay. But there's a summary that we put up that's worth reading. I can act, I'll, I'll shoot you the link if you want to put yeah. it up on your website later. But that was one of like the most long winded, um, re- like piece of analysis we've ever done. It, right. it, went, it dragged on for like a year, I think, since, hmm. since we were at the first to the last piece. Right. So maybe if I, I can summarize basically this this therapy doesn't work <laughs> well it depends who you ask like, i can't say it doesn't work but i can say that the clinical trials are very inconclusive okay and that's not just my opinion but if you look at when these guys try to branch out to the uk and the uk independently it has like a review of all the clinical studies that the company's done before they approve it in the market and these guys basically came up and said there's no independent clinical studies also they were but they were scrapped hmm. um, why did that happen so yeah it's it's weird and and there's there's pictures flying around and the company had a up on its website that they've had zero adverse effects to any of these products before which appears to be a lie because when you go on twitter you can see pictures of people with like huge like wounds that have been like infected or worse because you know, it just, something wasn't sterile or this thing doesn't work. But to come out and say that there's no adverse effects is a bit shady. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, and and there's, F, there's, there's so much. There's FDA reports that like the facilities weren't sterile. Blah, blah, blah. blah. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes for yeah. those who are intrigued by this. Uh, so what would you say to people who think that maybe releasing the reports you know uh, maybe the re- if they would say the re- re- you releasing the reports is hugely conflicted or creates some sort of ethical question about mm-hmm. why you're doing it do you ever get that yeah i don't think that it's any different from um goldman releasing a report on a company that all their clients heavily invested in and saying it's a massive long mm. that's fair enough yeah that's probably the the rebuttal that i hear most to that point and yeah i think i think yeah i think it there is an argument to be had there for efficiency and all the rest of it and like you said there's often conflicts with buy side reports right and and for us it's not i I think there was this sort of false narrative that when we were anonymous we were unaccountable to regulators Mm. um but the reality is that we we lodged our reports with every single whistleblower channel with the regulators with all of our details prior to publishing any report huh. we did when we were anonymous hmm. so they had a very good idea of who we were hmm. um okay we'll, we'll and get... part of that is because the u.s has a great whistleblower reward program <laughs> right. but also part of it is because like th- there's something happening here and they should be aware about it when you say whistleblower reward program what do you mean um so if you're a whistleblower in the united states 
you're afforded whistleblower protection, um, which basically means like they'll investigate the case and you'll be anonymous, whatever, whatever. Uh, if they can then prosecute the company mm -hmm. um, for damages or a fine, uh, the whistleblower is entitled to a percentage of that fine. Right. So, And some of them have been huge, like in the tens of millions of dollars some whistleblowers have gotten for lodging a claim. Wow. Uh, but the, the, the kicker is, I mean, if they do go to trial and need testimony, then you obviously can't remain anonymous, but you know, for 10 million bucks, laughing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that, that brings up an interesting point, which is yeah. the differences between here in Australia and elsewhere. How does that, can you explain for people that don't know how maybe some of what your understanding of the defamation laws and, and different um, I suppose oversight that we face here in Australia. The, um, yeah, I think for, that? for publication, it's really difficult because yeah. we don't have anti-slap. Yeah, that's what I was looking for. Um, so in the US, we always publish from the US every time we do stuff. Uh, and that's just because in the US, uh, you're essentially not allowed to sue someone to bankrupt them. So you'd have to go to the court and the court has to basically approve your case they have to you have to basically prove that you have a winnable case before you take someone to a jury trial right so if i was to release a report here in australia someone could sue me until the nth degree and i'm, I'm bankrupt so I yeah can't it's almost innocent until bankrupt yeah yeah okay and so do you physically get on a plane and go over to the states yep <laughs> commute, the commute sucks <laughs> i'm sure uh, you do other things while you're over there sure yeah do other things <laughs> yeah okay you be, you brought up an interesting point before um about being anonymous we I, uh -huh. I haven't brought that up yet viceroy from my understanding was anonymous no one knew who you were there was speculation and i was surprised when it turned out that you're in my own backyard yeah, effectively right. uh can you describe the process of what, how and who found out who you really were yeah and then how you felt when you realized that you were going to be exposed? Yeah. Um, I think it was actually Johnny Shapiro found out from the AFR. Hmm. Uh, and I, I was probably a bit of an arsehole actually when he reached out to me and said, hey, you're Viceroy. And I was like, no, I don't want to be part of whatever agenda it is that you're writing about. So I, I was kind of a bit of a jerk actually when he found out, probably because I was terrified. Yep. Um, but the, the way he found out was that there's metadata that was left in our report. Uh, and it had my name on it, on one of them. Hmm. And then... If when you, you say metadata, for people that don't know... It's basically like... Um, I mean, it's it's not like... My name's not written on the report, but if you look at the properties of the document, and like I think it was the author of a picture or something in, in the document. was. So me. you've got this picture, you've inserted it in a document, yeah, which has then been uploaded. Yeah, and then and if, they, you, if you scan the... Like the the back end of the document almost yep. it's got my name on it. And then if you had searched up my name at the time, it was me, Fraser and Iden in a business together in the UK, which is public record. Mm -hmm. uh, and Fraser was, has already been known as like Zatara at this point. Right. So I think it was at that stage, pretty obvious. That, Join the dots kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was terrifying because I didn't really know what to expect and we, we got a lot of like support 
uh, I think I, I got like hundreds of emails that day and be like, oh, you guys do great work. Don't worry about all the crap. But yeah, there was no doubt like with all the, I guess, shit stirring that we did mm. um, that there was going to be some bad press and there was. so Because... And it was strange, right? Because, I mean, Fraser was a social worker. I was 23, mm. I think, 23 or 24. And Arden was 24. So it, it was a bit surreal. And uh, I think that people thought we were sort of charlatans. And then it was only sort of after the fact that, you know, after sort of we kept writing up great stuff and then it's sort of kind of flipped. And now I think people are okay with two 25-year-olds like telling them that this stock's crap. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's put ourselves in your shoes. You've written about these companies overseas, these huge mm. companies, even some close to home, and have, they've collapsed effectively. Mm-hmm. I was like when I was doing my prep for the show. I was I was talking to people, saying like, these this is real money that people, mm-hmm. you know, they they don't care who is responsible. They just want to know yeah. because their stock has gone from a dollar to five cents. Mm-hmm. They they want someone to be responsible. So. I was thinking that would be pretty daunting to to be the one that everyone is focusing on, not the actual issue, but they're focusing on you. Yeah. And then, you know, you never know who's going to come knocking on your door. Do you ever yeah. worry about yeah. that? Yeah, people have rocked up to, like, my parents' house. Really? Yeah. Um, we had, like, people trying to serve us, uh, debt collectors. Yeah, right. Um, quote, unquote. Quote, unquote, knocking at you know, leaving cards and stuff in our doors. But it was, I think for like a good month, I was just a wreck. And we got sued that month as well by my medics, hmm. um, which was eventually dropped. And now we're suing them back. But at the time, it was just like so overwhelming because I had very little like recourse at what I could do, if, you know, mm. things really turned out. But it turned out fine. Do you, and then at that point, it was I would just stop feeling sorry for myself. I was actually just start going back to work, and it was great. And now I think that there is an inflection point where it's probably safer to be public than private, because like if someone some crazy did find out who it was and came after me, I think it'd be very difficult to explain to people why. <laughs> um, and I think that was, I I think that was the issue with Fraser as well, because he after Zatara leaks happened. Um, which was his previous anonymous outfit, he got stuffed in the back of a car and... Kidnapped. Kidnapped. Right. And I'm, and my, told to like never write about his company again. Right. So he just wrote more, which is great. Um, so what did you... What, what? That was that was weird for me as well because I thought that would happen to me when I was yeah. like public. But then I can think the more you think about it, it's like if something really did happen to me, it'd probably be really bad. I mean, it's very obvious why mm. to a degree. Um, but no, it's, yeah, it's a bit creepy. I think it happens to a lot of the other short sellers as well, to so, be honest. They get the, it's a short seller treatment. It's not good. Yeah. yeah. So, so did you have, did you put anything in place when you knew that you were going to be exposed? Did you change addresses? Did you postal addresses? Anything like that? Like, no, we, we'd already thought of that, um, right. beforehand. So yeah, I mean, we were, we were registered to like a virtual office essentially. Yeah. Um, but it's still creepy. Mm, for sure. Yeah. Um, because and these companies, once again, they're motivated, right? They have, mm-hmm. they'll do whatever, they have whatever means available to them yeah. and they'll pursue them. Yeah. 
anyway. Um, yeah, but I mean, historically, it hasn't been a very good idea to sue short sellers. Um, yeah, just ask Mark Cahodes. Hmm. It just never turns out well. Hmm. Yeah, I suppose once you get to a certain status uh, in experience. Yeah, because I mean, we don't really have anything tied. Yeah, you're, you're quite happy for it to be made. Sure, yeah, yeah, take us to Discovery. It's great. We get all your files. <laughs> and uh, I, it sounds like you've had some experience with this recently. Yep. For me, that would, on the opposite side of the ledger, that, that would be pretty, I'd be petrified, to be honest. But, yeah, it's pretty daunting. Yeah. But it's, it's good, I think. Um, you know, I didn't really expect it, you know, 20 something to get sued, but mm. now I'm just more comfortable, with, not comfortable with the idea. But if it happens, at least sort of, we know where we stand. You'd have to have legal teams, right? Yeah, we have a lawyer. Here in Australia, overseas? Uh, in the US. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so we're registered over there. Yeah, uh, right. Well, yeah, we're registered over there. Yeah, okay. And um, as we come to the back of the, the conversation, uh, there's the, just for people that want to follow along with some of your research, where would they go? Mm-hmm. Um, best place is probably on Twitter. Yeah, you're on Twitter personally, right? I'm on Twitter personally. Um, it's Gabe underscore Bernard. I'm sure you can put up the, the yeah, link. Yeah, definitely. And Viceroy is also on Twitter. It's at Viceroy Research. Mm-hmm. And I think Twitter is generally like the best financial news source. Mm. Agreed. Uh, for like live stuff. And if you get a good sort of, I don't know, not overwhelming, like not overwhelmingly high number of followers because otherwise it's just like a, your newsfeed just becomes a dump. But if you get like a, you know, 100, 200 or so good people that put out decent updates of your interest, then yeah, it's great. It's mm. all live. Um, and it was so strange because like we, when we started Viceroy, we put out stuff on Twitter just because like everyone else was doing it. And then like Mark Cahodes followed us. I thought it was like the hottest shit ever. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's great. And then, yeah, now I ended up going to his farm and like, drinking rum punch with him it's fun <laughs> but it's really easy to start um you know discussions with people that, that mm. are really knowledgeable about certain things and most people are really happy to do it so mm. yeah okay, definitely cool. recommend twitter yeah cool i'll get um i'll put that link in the show notes uh mate this is the last question mm-hmm. uh, and it's a standard one if you could go back and tell a younger you you're pretty young anyway but if you could tell a younger you one thing about money finance or investing Oh, jeez, probably don't get into short selling. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I think it's maybe I'll have a better answer for you in a few years. Okay. I think it's still early days. Yeah. Well, I'm more than happy to revisit in a few years then. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see where Viceroy <laughs> and yourself are in a few years. Exactly. All right, yeah. mate. Well, um, thanks for joining me on the show. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning into the Australian Investors Podcast. For further episodes, head to www.raskfinance.com. To provide feedback, nominate a guest, or hear from me, you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Owen Rask. Cheers to our financial futures.